If you need help getting Social Security Disability Benefits, then this podcast is for you. Give me 15 minutes and I'll pull back the curtain on disability and reveal the secrets to winning I've learned over the past 25 plus years. Hi, I'm Jonathan Ginsberg and I'm a practicing Social Security Disability Lawyer. I want to help deserving claimants just like you win the benefits you deserve and not one penny less. Now, if you already know you need help today, go to ssdanswers.com for a free and confidential evaluation of your case. It takes just two minutes. That's ssdanswers.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to the Social Security Disability Podcast, and today I'm going to be talking to attorney Carl Osterhout. Carl has a long history as a hearing lawyer, but now spends most of his time representing claimants in appeals to the Appeals Council or Federal Court. In other words, if you lose at your hearing and you want to appeal the judge's denial, the judge's decision, you can turn to an attorney like Carl for help. One of the points that Carl makes in this interview is that at the Appeals Council, the question of whether or not you're disabled is almost beside the point. The appeals council is looking for mistakes in the judge's analysis or the judge's reading of the facts. So if you lose at your hearing, you have to make a decision. Do you file an appeal to the appeals council or do you file a new application? Now, statistically, at the appeals council, only about 10% of the cases are remanded or reversed. Most of the time, they would be remanded to the hearing judge for another hearing. 90% of the time, uh, appeals Council, the Appeals Council refuses to take action unless the decision stand. So in my practice, if I get an unfavorable decision, I'm going to send it with my client's permission to an attorney like Carl who thoroughly understands how the Appeals Council works uh, and whether or not the particular case, the facts of that case would line up for a successful appeal because otherwise you could go through the appeals process, spend two years waiting and get another denial Uh, Whereas you could otherwise follow a new application, start over, and maybe get another shot uh, with a different judge, perhaps. But in any case, I hope that after listening to my interview with Carl, you'll have a better understanding about how the Appeals Council works. I certainly did, and I hope you find this interview useful. Uh, I want to welcome Carl Osterhout to the Social Disability Podcast. Carl, thank you for coming. Thanks a lot for having me, Jonathan. This is, uh, uh, I've really been looking forward to this. Great. Well, I want to kind of jump right into it and talk about appellate work in the Social Security world. You know, I do a lot of work at hearings, but I get a lot of calls and emails from folks um, asking about appeals, both the Appeals Council and Federal Court. Today I want to talk mostly about the Appeals Council, but let me give a little background information if I could. Uh, Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get involved with Social Security Disability Law? How long have you been in practice? And uh, tell me a little bit about what you do. Well, I... I got involved completely by accident, really. Uh, I just answered a, a, a one ad. Uh, this will tell you how old I am. It was on a bulletin board on 5 by 7 cards uh, when I was in law school. Uh, wrote down a number and made a call and got a job, and, and this was what I was doing You know, when, uh, in my uh, first year of law school. I went at night. And uh, I took to it right away and, and basically uh, have been doing this uh, – practically exclusively uh, since 1984. Wow, okay. So currently, and there's many versions of this, but uh, currently uh, I'm the managing partner of uh, Osterhout Burger Disability Law. I have two 
other partners, uh, Eric Berger, uh, who maintains our office in Jacksonville, Florida, and my wife, Lindsay, is also my law partner. And of course, she's here, and she manages the administrative level practice. Got it. Actually, I practice with my wife as well, though my wife does not do uh, Social Security. She does workers' compensation here in Atlanta. Um, so I, I, it's kind of nice to have sort of a family. In fact, my daughter just uh, graduated law school last year and joined our firm as well. She's doing workers' oh, compensation. Oh, no kidding. Got a, we got a whole family here. Um, my, my kids, both of them, moved, they moved out, and then they uh, they moved back into the office because my son's working, but he works remotely, so he's at the office a good bit as well. So it's kind of kind of neat to have them both here. Um, where do you, where, what part of the country are you in? Where do you uh, practice from? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I forgot to mention. Well, we're in the Pittsburgh area. I mean, for people uh, from somewhere else, I just say Pittsburgh, but actually uh, our office is in uh, Oakmont, Pennsylvania, which is about uh, – nine miles north of Pittsburgh, and it's actually where uh, it, it, people who are golfers uh, recognize that the U.S. Open and the Women's U.S. Open every several That's years right. in a rotation that I don't know anything about uh, yep. is at our right. country club here. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very nice. So the appellate work, it sounds like you've been doing this since really the get-go since you said 84. I mean, is that we doing social security work, or did you kind of immediately go to the appellate side of it? No, oh no, not at all. Uh, uh, for many, many years, uh, I was uh, running the hearings. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I've probably appeared in personally in something like twenty thousand hearings, and uh, and probably supervised other people doing uh, ten to fifteen thousand more. Um, so, in the course of that, though, historically, uh, uh, we were appealing our own cases. Uh, and that was my introduction to this. Uh, but what happened, uh, or what I think I picked up on and, and got ahead of the curve on a little bit, was that when uh, the uh, uh, award rates uh, at the ALJ level started to dip, you know, seven or so years ago, uh, I revived an old idea that I'd had for many years and could never interest anybody in, which was, uh, you know, refer your federal court work to me, uh, I'll handle it for you and then return your case to you if uh, we get it, you know, get the case remanded uh, for, uh, to continue to handle it, uh, the same claimant's case uh, at the administrative level again. And that really has grown to where it's a department all on its own. We have our own intake staff, our own uh, uh, clerical staff, and, uh, and I have uh, at any given point in time uh, seven attorneys writing briefs every month. Uh, some of them are part-time. Several of them uh, don't even work in our office here, but work remotely. Uh, but we're probably filing somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 500 federal court cases a year. Wow. Well, I know I, I typically refer, I don't, I've done a little bit of appellate work, um, mostly, pretty much just appeals counsel work, and I've gotten to the point where I'm too busy to do it, so I typically refer to you uh, just for that very reason. I think. By the way, thank you for that. Uh, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, why don't we, just so we can explain to the audience, um, what is the biggest difference between ALJ work, you know, the work at the administrative ALJ level, and then appeals counsel work? Let's just, we'll talk with the appeals counsel. We'll start with that. What's the biggest difference? Well, in, in, in some ways, the answer is the same uh, for both. 
Um, and I, I know we're going to do another discussion on federal court alone, and, and I'll repeat it then. But bottom line is that the difference between appellate work in general and uh, the kind of work that gets done either at the initial or reconsideration level, if you live in a state that has reconsideration or at the ALJ level, is that once uh, the judge, once the ALJ has issued the decision, uh, then the case in a weird kind of way isn't even really about whether the claimant's disabled or not anymore. What the case is about then uh, at the Appeals Council and, and at the federal court when we talk about that later is about whether uh, the ALJ's decision uh, to deny benefits is reasonably supported by the record and free of any legal error. And so another way that I explain this to claimants is to say that uh, the Appeals Council and federal court are not uh, Monday morning quarterbacks. It's not their job to second guess the ALJ, who by law is uh, given the uh, task and obligation, hopefully, to fairly decide the case. So, uh, and, and yet another way of describing it is that unless we can show an error of law or that no reasonable person would come to the same conclusion that the ALJ did, then the Appeals Council and federal court's job is to uphold uh, the decision. Uh, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, sure. Which of these two? Which of these two? And you're talking about, you know, no reasonable person would see the evidence this way, an error of law. Is there any way to break down which? What do you see more of? I guess as far as successful appeals. Well, what I see more of is mixed questions of fact and law. Um, okay. So, uh, so an error of law might be. Um, uh, you know, just as an example, if, if an ALJ, I mean, I'll just pick a super simple example. Uh, sure. if, if under the medical vocational guidelines, the claimant uh, should be awarded benefits at age 55 based on RFC and vocational factors, and the ALJ somehow just screwed up and, and, and got the claimant's age wrong, and said that they were 52 when they were 57, then the argument in that case would essentially be an error of law, that the ALJ should have applied the favorable grid rule, didn't, and therefore the case should be reversed. A case of, uh, of, uh, uh, of fact would be the, the one that, the, a, t a type of case that almost everybody's heard of, which is where the argument in court is... Uh, that the ALJ did not give appropriate weight uh, to medical opinions. So in those cases, you're inherently uh, asking the court to make judgments about how the ALJ uh, uh, weighed the opinion of a treating source, for instance, against the opinion of a doctor uh, who just reviewed the file versus a doctor who only examined the claimant one time, that sort of thing. That's primarily an issue of fact that's subject to the reasonableness test, but there are, uh, in, uh, in those cases, uh, again, it, legal issues that, that we always want to mix in there. I don't ever want 
in my appeals as much as possible to just be arguing that the ALJ was unreasonable because uh, it's a very difficult test. Uh, lots of things might be right or wrong in God's eyes, but uh, not too many things are uh, unreasonable. In other words, where two reasonable people couldn't disagree. Right, because, I mean, that's one of the things that I get questions. I mean, I, I saw an email from somebody just, just today, as a matter of fact, where they said, you know, how could the judge deny my case? I have four years of treating with this psychologist, and they went with the consultative doctor's evaluation and denied me. And, of course, under the, the new, I guess, the, the change in the treating physician rule, um, that's probably okay. I mean, if that's all you got, that's not really a winning appeal, I would think. Well, that's a whole can of worms, Jonathan, um, and and we really could almost do another uh, talk about that. I don't actually agree entirely with what you just said. I think there's actually, uh, well, I'm doing a presentation for Nader next month, for instance, where my title is, uh, The Treating Physician Rule is Not Dead, uh, but it does, but, but, but it does, uh, your comments do point up the fact that these cases, kind of almost by definition, um, uh, when the judge makes a value, or I shouldn't say value, but uh, a, uh, a, a factual judgment uh, between, let's say, fact A and fact B, and you can't point at any really good reason why the judge had to pick A versus B, uh, you lose. And kind of by definition, then my practice really exists around the margin. Uh, I might have to look at, you know, out of 100 cases that I look at, um, and we look at here something like 5,000 cases a year, um, we take, you know, probably between 10, 12, 13 of those cases for exactly the reason that you just pointed out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are, and so, I mean, I, I just, again, so folks would know, what are the type of issues that would be probably less desirable in an appeal, appellate, uh, appeals counsel case? Just well, in a case said, where, oops, sorry, Jonathan. No, no, no did I, I, I was just step saying. step on you? No, no, I didn't. I did, you go ahead uh, and, and please explain. Well, I mean, the most obvious type of case that won't get appealed is where, uh, there's just a mixed bag of evidence is how I refer to it. You know, you might have a very good treating source, uh, let's say just a regular old family doctor type of person. Uh, Social Security sent the guy to a doctor. Maybe he's a specialist. Maybe he isn't, as you know, and, and maybe some of the people out there know. Uh, Social Security also has most, if not all, cases reviewed uh, just on the record itself by a doctor, and then there's another opinion that has to be contended with. And when those opinions are all over the place, and especially when the claimant is younger, when you just don't get any advantage, uh, let's say, from any of the vocational factors in the case, because uh, basically every younger client case is that you have to rule out all jobs, uh, those are not particularly strong cases, excuse me, normally. Um, not to say at all that we don't take and haven't taken and been successful with uh, cases where the claimant was younger. But that's usually because uh, the ALJ, for instance, a very common error 
that we uh, deal with a lot, and we've actually been pretty successful right down there in all three districts in Georgia with is when the ALJ finds that certain impairments uh, that the claimant has are not severe. And very typically, an ALJ will find, let's say, that the medical condition of back pain is a severe impairment, which means, of course, uh, an impairment that results in some degree of limitation. But then we'll find that the claimant's uh, depression and anxiety are not severe impairments. Now, I know why they do that. They do that so they don't have to contend with um, uh, limiting the claimant to unskilled jobs because of mental impairments. Um, And we see it all the time. That's a very common thing that ALJs do. Another very common uh, issue that comes up at the Appeals Council um, is when the the ALJ has uh, misstated uh, the claimants, uh, the nature of the claimants' past relevant work. Another issue that we deal with a lot at the Appeals Council and again at federal court when we talk about that are vocational issues, when the vocational expert's testimony is not uh, consistent with the Dictionary of Occupational Titles and or other reliable sources. And there's just been an excellent decision that came out of the 11th Circuit on that issue um, uh, that's going to help us a lot. Don't know where to begin? Get my free Secrets to Getting Approved Survival Kit. Inside the kit, I discuss such things as how do you know if you have a case? What to do if you're denied? How to avoid common mistakes? And my ever popular how to avoid trick questions from the judge? Subscribing is free and easy. Just visit ssdanswers.com and look for the survival kit for instant access. Remember, time is eroding your position every day. Don't delay. Act now. That's ssdanswers.com for your free survival kit. Um, let me ask you a, more, a couple practical questions. Sure. Let's say I'm at a hearing and... I get the sense the judge is just hostile. And, you know, again, some judges yep. may be having a bad day or they just, you know, are very cynical just in general or, or whatever the reason may be. Is there anything that I should do as an attorney to help preserve the record or seed the record for appeal? Any mistakes that you see attorneys make, that maybe they, sh- they things they should do differently in the event uh, that things do not appear to be going well at a hearing? Well, uh, there's two ways to answer that. The, the first way is to say yes. <laughs> and leave it at that. And the other, the right. other is to say uh, that, for instance, uh, one of the, the things that, um, uh, that my d- department does when, when we're working with a referral source who asks a question like that is that uh, we offer uh, you know, some sort of training or resource that starts to point out the types of issues that's winning, that are winning in the circuit where they practice. So, for instance, uh, in... Uh, early April, uh, I have a very good referral source out of San Antonio, Texas, which just happens to be where the National Association of Disability Representatives Conference is this year. And so while I'm down there at the conference, the day before the conference, I'm going to go to these guys' offices and, and probably talk for three or four hours about um, the kinds of issues that they can be uh, spotting. The other uh, thing that that we do and I know nobody does this, um, 
uh, with our uh, federal court partners is that, and we're just rolling this out really over the last couple of months, is that we work very closely with hearing level reps on vocational issues. And by the way, that could be yet another uh, podcast. And I'm not volunteering to be on every no, one no, of no, podcasts for the have next you. year. This is all fascinating. Absolutely. Um, but what we do with them, actually, and for a and again, I can get into a lot more detail about it, but for a very minimal cost um, is attack uh, crappy vocational testimony uh, because there seems to be no end in sight to that. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and again, I can get into a lot of details at some other point with you just uh, off to the side or whatever, but bottom line is what we see, where we see the opportunity with Uh, our referral sources to be very helpful to them, but frankly also very helpful to ourselves, is to preserve um, objections uh, and offer rebuttal evidence uh, to bad vocational testimony in cases. And and this is really a chronic problem. It's it's just a really awful problem. Well, you know, there's certainly, I mean, among, the vocational witnesses in the Atlanta are actually, I think, fairly decent. But there is, you know, there are some, sometimes they're just off the wall. I've even had a couple of cases where the judge would stop the hearing and say, we're going to reconvene because the vocational witness was clearly, you know, just not qualified. Uh, again, it doesn't happen very much, but it, but it does happen. Um, let me ask you this. Now, I get sometimes calls or emails from people, you know, my lawyer did not submit at this evidence that existed or I have a new diagnosis, does any of that have any value on the, at the appeals council level, or is basically the record closed as of the hearing date? That's a little bit of a complicated question, but I think I can answer it quickly just by saying two things. One is uh, that uh, it can depend a lot on where the case is. Um, there's a couple of circuits, my circuit, uh, the Third Circuit, for instance, um, uh, the rulings that they've issued uh, limit your ability to do that pretty significantly. But, for instance, in the Eleventh Circuit where you are, um, we would get the opportunity to submit evidence like that to the Appeals Council um, without... Um, without um, the Appeals Council just excluding it like they do where I am. Um, It has to be material, though. Mm -hmm. Just um, a bunch of new evidence isn't really going to make any difference unless it establishes something pretty significant for the case. And uh, in response to the second part of your question, if the evidence relates to a development after uh, the date of the judge's decision. Just to pick a crazy example, the, the, the claimant gets denied on Monday and Tuesday they get run over by a train. Um, that evidence doesn't come in because, um, again, in an appeals case, the issue is always going to be whether the ALJ made the decision he made or she made based on a reasonable interpretation of the facts and, um, and, and, uh, and correct application of the law. Well, of course, an ALJ can't be held responsible for knowing that 
um, the uh, that the claimant was going to get run over by a train the day after he decided the case. Got it. Got it. Um, any trends that you see in the appeals council world? Anything changing in terms of the way they do things, the time frame, the uh, trends in terms of their decision making, or is it pretty much the way it always has been? I would say overall, um, you know, and I've been doing this a long time now, and I suspect you, you know, I don't know how long you've been doing it, but you've been doing it for a while too. Um, right, right. I don't see that much difference. Uh, in uh, with respect to either thing you just mentioned, certainly the time okay. frames. The whole time I've been doing this uh, have been that uh, you might get the decision back from the appeals council in a month or two, or you might get the decision back from the appeals council in a year. Uh, my picture of the appeals council, and I and I had an opportunity to go there one time and I didn't on purpose because I like the picture in my head better, which is uh, <laughs> at the, at the end of the uh, Raiders of the lost Ark, you know, they're taking the Ark into this right. big warehouse where they hide right. all of everything from us. And like, you know, yeah. the picture at the end is this warehouse that you can't even see the other end of it. Uh, mm-hmm. That's always been the picture in my head of the appeals council in terms yeah, of trends in, uh, in decision-making. Yeah. You know, I think it's varied somewhat um, uh, during the times the time that I've been doing this. And if there was any trend, let's say, in the last three or four years, uh, it's been kind of an unfortunate one of nitpicking favorable decisions by uh, Social Security judges. Uh, I've seen a lot more, I would say, in, let's say, the last five years or so, of situations where the appeals council picked apart a decision where the ALJ actually awarded benefits. So I think that... And how, did, and how does that work? Do they do that without... I mean, there's obviously no appeal file. They review all favorable decisions um, that are issued. Is that how that works? Well, they have the opportunity to. Um, the, the, under the regulations, they, there's, a, there's a, an own motion, they call it review period, of 60 days, or sorry, 30 days after the decision is issued where they have the ability to file a notice saying, hey, we're looking at this. Um, That's not the decision. That's just the notice that they're looking at it. And then typically, or no, not even typically, I mean, by by regulation, uh, they have to to explain what they're concerned with and give the claimant or the claim and the claimant's rep uh, the chance to comment on whatever concerns they have, and then at some point in the future, they either decide uh, to stick by their concern or change their mind. But anymore, uh, they don't change their mind that much. If you get a notice from them saying they are going to review it, I would say it's 95% for sure that uh, the review is going to result in them sending it back to the judge for another decision. Occasionally, so, so these, yeah. Occasionally, they, uh, they'll just overturn the judge. Um, now, I'm not saying all these decisions are wrong. I mean, it's impossible to say something like that uh, right. in a blanket fashion. But uh, frankly, most of the time, and one of my best friends in the world is an active uh, Social Security judge right here in Pittsburgh. You know, we can't even have hearings in front of him because of our friendship. Uh, mm. And one of the things he complains about all the time is how often... Uh, you know, because he is a hardworking guy and real smart and actually does care about what he's doing. And yet, for all of that, 
um, he still gets remands uh, from the appeals council identifying supposed errors in his decisions. Not, you know, constantly or anything like that, but regularly enough that he never doesn't notice it. Yes. Yeah, so, so in other words, you could be someone who's waited two and a half years for your hearing. You go to the hearing, you get a favorable decision, and then all of a sudden you get this letter in the mail from the appeals council saying, well, not so fast. How, right. That can happen. That. I mean, the, the, just yeah. so everybody out there isn't scared to death. I mean, it's not like this is happening at some alarming, in some alarming percentage of the cases or anything like that. Uh, but definitely it does happen, that's for sure. One last question, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, and this is, I'm going to ask just because I've got a case involved with this. I raised the Lucia case in an appeal. Yeah. Um, yeah. And nothing is, basically nothing is happening. It is just sitting there. Right. Is that right. your experience? What do you expect to happen? And let people know what Lucia is, if you, if you wouldn't mind. Right. Well, Luce, uh, Lucia, I think it is. Lucia. Uh, not to correct yeah. you, but it's just that no, I know I'm going to say it my way. Yeah. <laughs> Lucia... Yeah is a decision of the Supreme Court that wasn't even about Social Security cases. The uh, National Organ of, Organization of Social Security Claimants Reps uh, filed an amicus brief in that case begging the court to, uh, uh, to explicitly exclude Social Security ALJs from the decision they were going to make. But bottom line was that, uh, or is that um, in the context of a security exchange Commission case, um, the court ruled that, <clears throat> excuse me, the SEC ALJ uh, was not, or that I should say, I'm sorry, SEC ALJs in general had not been appropriately uh, commissioned as judges under the uh, under the statute. Now I don't want to get into all of that. I don't think you do either. Want me to? No. But the bottom line is it creates a question of whether the Social Security judges were correctly appointed. Uh, and uh, the way the SEC case, uh, Lucia, played out is that the court found that, the, that the, the SEC judge had not been properly appointed and remanded the case back to the SEC uh, with a specific instruction that the same judge not hear the case. And so how this plays out in Social Security context uh, is that some people, and, and there's, there's smart people disagree about this, this is for sure. Uh, I'm actually in the camp of I'm not bothering with this. Uh, but I'm honestly able to be ambivalent and, and, and actually fight for Lucia cases when, when I have to because some of my federal court partners uh, want me to uh, because uh, – Social Security um, uh, kind of hurried up after the Lucia decision was made and had this big swearing-in ceremony for all the ALJs that they believe complies with whatever went wrong in the actual Lucia case itself. But what that creates is a question then. That ceremony took place uh, I think on July 27th of last year. So this raises an issue of whether any decision by a judge that was issued on or before, or I should say before July 27, 2018, is an appropriate decision and whether it should be remanded 
for a hearing by a different judge, just like uh, uh, Lucia got uh, in his case. Uh, so this issue, uh, well, and it could come up if you wanted to, Jonathan, in the context of federal court uh, of the federal court discussion we're going to have next. But at okay. the appeals council, to answer your question finally. Uh, I have uh, in my uh, group of referral sources two major referral sources, both of, uh, both who believe pretty strongly in this uh, Lucia issue, uh, and I've also heard scuttlebutt from other people who do. And right now it does seem like everybody who has a Lucia issue in their appeals council appeal uh, is waiting uh, much longer than usual uh, for a decision from the Appeals Council. It seems quite obvious now, especially as this information has started to collect from various sources that I'm, uh, who I'm familiar with, that they're clearly sitting on these cases and, uh, and coming to some kind of judgment about how exactly they're going to handle them. Uh, I think yeah. the options are, obviously, they remand every single one of them uh, for a new hearing, uh, and just play it safe, um, or uh, they'll come up with some reason why, well, you know, all we did last July was uh, go through this ceremony just to, to be absolutely sure if we ended up believing that Lucia applied to us, uh, but now we don't think Lucia applies to us. Wow. <laughs> Talk about a mess. Talk about a mess. <laughs> Well, All it really right. is, because uh, well, a lot of people have been sitting for a long time waiting for their decisions, yes. so that's for sure. I have a client right now that, I mean, she, you know, a poor lady is, and I think I think the judge made a mistake, and I think the, the, the case really should be remanded, uh, but, you know, she, we can't get any movement at all, and she's extremely frustrated, so I promised her I would ask you, so that's why I did. Um, <laughs> where, can, where can our listeners find you on the Internet? Our uh, email address, or, um, excuse me, our website is uh, www.mydisabilityattorney.com. Pretty easy to remember. Um, yep. Mydisabilityattorney.com. Any way you spell it, any way you capitalize it, whatever, it, you always get uh, to us. Um, our okay. toll-free number is 1-866-438-8773, and we also have a vigorous uh, presence on Facebook, uh, again, we're Osterhout-Berger Disability Law and on LinkedIn uh, under the same, obviously, company name. Very nice. Very nice. Well, listen, thank you very much for uh, giving us uh, kind of a tour of the Appeals Council and the world of appellate law for social disability. I certainly learned a good deal, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So thank you very much. Uh, you're welcome. I hope that's right. I hope they did. Thanks uh, a lot for having me. My pleasure. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode. Subscribe to this podcast for regular updates at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this podcast useful, then please give me a five-star review because it helps others see the value of my information. Thank you in advance. For a 100% free and confidential evaluation of your case, visit ssdanswers.com. That's ssdanswers.com. Don't delay. Act now.